Hello and welcome to the Uncapped Podcast, brought to you by Roast House Pub, one of Frederick's finest craft beer and culinary destinations, where great people come to drink amazing beer. Visit them to track their taps and menu at roasthousepub.com, or download the digital pour app to track what's on tap. Hello, I'm your host, Chris Sands, and this week we're joined by Drew Baker from Old Westminster Winery, and... He also has a actually a slew of new things to tell us about. Um, so welcome back uh, t- into the studio. Good to be here, Chris. Happy so I, to, yeah, happy to join you. I don't um I don't even know where to start now. You have so much going on. Um, I think. Do Do you want to start with your event first? Yeah, sure. Talk, so I mean, just dive right into that since that's the freshest. Yeah. Uh, what if of, we start with sort of the backstory on the the last time I was on the show? We talked a lot about Old Westminster Winery. I think maybe this time it'd be appropriate to talk about the new farm yes. uh, and the new project, the Burnt Hill Project. I think w- when you were last on, were you just starting to look at that, or like? The early seeds were in place for it? Yeah, so we uh, acquired a new farm in Clarksburg, Maryland two years ago, and it's 117 acres, beautiful site, amazing hillside, the right soils. We think we're going to be able to grow grapes fit for amazing wines there. Um, So we've been plugging away, uh, sort of building a foundation for that project over the past couple of years. So uh, we may have teased it out the last time I was on the show, uh, but since then, a lot has happened. we're gearing up uh, April 22nd, um, uh, 21st and 22nd, Easter Monday. Uh, we are going to be planting the first 30,000 grapevines on that hillside. So That's a lot of grapevines. Yes, it's a big project. Uh, it's finally coming to life. We're really excited. We're, we're all in, uh, uh, literally and figuratively. And, um, you know, super excited to get that project off the ground. Um, we've been farming the site biodynamically for the past two years. And uh, just really feel like um, the energy is there and and that the place is ready for for planting. So that's a term I've seen a bunch of times, but I I don't quite understand what it is or what it means. Biodynamic farming. What it, Absolutely. So that? there's a lot of misinformation about biodynamics. But, yeah, I'd love to sort of give you the, the breakdown uh, to my mind. So. Biodynamics is really um, the earliest of the organic farming movements. Um, Very early 1900s, a philosopher, an Austrian philosopher by the name of Rudolf Steiner um, was uh, sort of in in the midst of the throes of uh, two world wars, um, was seeing what uh, the war machine was doing to agriculture, where all of a sudden people were learning how to make, um, you know, urea, uh, nitrogen, key components in bombs. As soon as those components aren't needed for bombs, they realized, hey, we can make plants grow with this nitrogen. And so they were making all of these crazy synthetic uh, compounds that were being spread on fields, making crops grow like crazy. And, and sort of the science of the time said, look at these results. It's undeniable how well this works. And he was one of the first to really step back and say, this is unsustainable. Uh, this really is not the way to create a healthy ecosystem. Uh, someday someone may find this is not a great idea. <laughs> exactly. Someday we're going to realize that we're killing the soil and ourselves with this style of farming. And um, well, we now know him to be 
absolutely correct. And um, so we lean on uh, a lot of his sort of early teachings on how to build healthy soil without uh, synthetic fertilizers. He really liked to look at a farm as like a self-contained organism. And the idea is that we should be able to plant a diversity of crops. Um, We should raise a diversity of animals and create sort of like this this cycle of life that doesn't require us to bring in all of these uh, fertilizers and pesticides and insecticides and and sort of like um, looking at a farm as a way to bring life to it uh, rather than just sort of like killing off all the stuff that you don't want. And it's sort of just a paradigm, you know, the way that you look at your farm um, that has really captivated us. And, um, and then, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, many of the great wines of the world today that I am just falling in love with are made by people who have long subscribed to these, um, uh, philosophies and, and I'm just starting to connect all of these dots and, uh, we're working to implement these ideas, uh, on our farm in Clarksburg. So is it, is it like using more natural resources to make fertilizers and the, or is it Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So I think you saw on my Instagram, we posted a picture of us digging a big pit and burying all of the cow horns. Yeah. I assume that was just like a black magic restaurant or something. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that, that, that is definitely, that was on my list of, um, yeah, absolutely. So it's a perfect, explain that. <laughs> yeah. So it's a perfect example. Um, uh, we took 40 cow horns and, uh, that we got from our local butcher and, uh, we, uh, fill those horns uh, with fresh manure uh, from my neighbor's farm, and uh, and we basically bury that uh, in the fall, and we uh, let those um, uh, ferment in the ground uh, to break down uh, over the winter. We'll dig them up in the spring, make a tea from that manure, and spread it on the hill. And the idea is that in this during this process, there's a transformation that happens in the ground. uh, And there's lots of energies at play um, that create um, sort of uh, this uh, energized uh, manure that we spread on our on on our hillside. And um, it's less like a fertilizer where you're looking at sort of like pounds of nutrient per acre, which is sort of the, uh, I think the, the the most standard way to look at it. And it's more of like an inoculum. Um, and it creates this really healthy yeast and bacteria in your soil, uh, that are capable of reproducing again and again and creating this really healthy flora. Um, so it's almost more of like, a instead of a one-time application of a fertilizer, you're building a living ecosystem that's going to almost like you're the bacteria and stuff in your stomach that makes everything work. You're doing that for your fields. It's the idea. Yeah, okay. exactly. It's probiotics for the earth. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a lot of, so, so what we're doing, um, because, uh, I think really, um, uh, scientific research is, is, uh, a, a, an important piece to me. Um, you know, we're not, uh, voodoo, uh, <laughs> barefoot farmers. Um, uh, Though I do think that there is interest in sort of really, you know, connecting with your land beyond the X's and the O's. Um, so what we did was, in addition to the to the cow horns that we buried in that pit, we also took uh, other vessels, including uh, a mason jar, stuffed it with the same manure at the same time and buried it in the same pit right along with the um, 
horns. So in the spring, when we dig these materials up, uh, I am going to take samples from multiple horns and also that mason jar, and I will send them to a lab for analysis so that so that we can scientifically demonstrate uh, that transformation. Uh, and I have a hunch that there's more than black magic to it, uh, <laughs> and that in fact, um, you know, uh, farmers have been doing this for a long, long time, and um, you know that there's that there's something more to it. So we're going to get to the bottom of it. Okay, that's cool because I was actually it was going to be one of my next questions was is the does the cow horn provide like an active ingredient or it's, is it just what way back when they first started that was an easy. Uh, vessel that they had to bury or was it part yeah, of so a, I think it's a bit of both. ritualistic thing. yeah so I think it's a bit of both because I think Steiner whose sort of philosophy it's you know is is the uh, benchmark for this biodynamic farming movement um, his idea was to speak directly to farmers who were having pressure from uh, from uh, political uh, powers to farm a certain way the to Monsanto achieve. of their time the Monsanto of their time very much so um, so what he was trying to do was offer um, you know sort of practical things that every farmer could do with the materials that they had instead of buying from the okay. Monsanto of their time so he would have understood sort of the animals and the plant life that would be on their farm and the question is how do we uh, make how do we create cycles of life within these uh, within these materials that are residing on your farm? So a cow would have been a, an integral piece of yeah. every farm at that time. Um, and so there are, um, you know, many uh, magical aspects of cows. They're really phenomenal, um, uh, you know, metabolism machines. Um, they have an ability to, to eat grass and their stomachs um, metabolize this grass and their manure actually is medicine for that hillside because um, plants have an amazing way of sort of sorting themselves. I don't know if you've seen time lapses before where you just look at a bare rock and depending on the environment and where it is, certain plants find themselves on that rock and they start building an ecosystem. Yeah. And then as the environment changes, you start seeing new organisms taking place. It's really amazing. And nature has an amazing way of taking care of itself. It does. And cows really play an, uh, an important piece in this because based on the weeds and on the uh, chemical makeup of the plants that the cows consume, their bodies are creating medicine for that soil. It's really oh, wow. amazing. Yeah. And uh, the horns of a cow, unlike uh, you know those of a deer, for example, um, are not uh, are not uh, simply uh, bone, but they're actually a piece of their uh, uh, part of their metabolism. Um, there's an amazing amount of of enzymes that are generated uh, that are created within their horns, and so at that time, um, Steiner was obviously aware of this as most farmers would be and they felt like they were looking for the perfect vessel to sort of bury this manure and create this energy uh, and it made a lot of sense at that time and um, you know through the study that I'm doing right now on our farm uh, we're going to see exactly uh, you know if there is something special about that vessel over say a plastic cup or a glass ball jar um, so yeah I find it fascinating that in like, there, there's in, in alcohol, all these ancient industries, there are still ways to make new scientific discoveries and uh, be innovative in 
in new ways that no one has, even though wine, I mean, how many centuries has wine been produced? It's as old as time. But I think that like that tension is really important. Sort of that tension between, um, you know, the way things were once done and, and why, and sort of what we have access to now via science and technology. I think finding that, finding, you know, continually um, exploring that balance is where hopefully we can create products that are delicious and bring pleasure, but also sort of stimulating, um, which to my mind is, is half of the fun of drinking these products, um, is, you know, sort of understanding, um, you know, why and by whom and where, and that interesting story is what I think makes wine and beer and other products, you know, either interesting or just simply alcohol. So the, is that the, um, uh, horn burial, is that a, something you have to do yearly or is that, uh, like to start the farm out, you do that? So we do it, we'll do it every year. Okay. Um, and, uh, so it's sort of, uh, you know, it, it's really a baseline, um, uh, application uh, within uh, preparation, uh, Steiner would call it, within biodynamics. And so in the winter period, we have the manure. In the spring, we'll dig that up, make the tea and apply, as I had mentioned before. But we will also take uh, silica um, and uh, this silica pow- powder, um, which is basically ground up stone and put it back into the horns and bury that for the summer season. In the fall, we'll dig the horns up and uh, we use this silica for application on the plants. And silica has uh, an amazing ability to create um, uh, to uh, uh, create increased heightened photosynthesis because it's sort of like a magnifying glass. It's like spreading, um, you know, a thousand uh, diamonds or magnifying glasses on the foliage of the plants. Um, and we use that in the dur- during the growing season strategically at pertin- certain times to create uh, drying in the plants to stimulate ripening of the fruit, um, to stimulate photosynthesis at certain times throughout the year. So these are really like ancient methods um, that we're finding actually work. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's um, I think, much more interesting than just spraying, uh, you know, synthetic materials to kill the stuff that, you know, you don't want on yeah. your farm. So it definitely sounds like way more work, though. <laughs> it's a bit more work. But you know what? I think that in that work is a lot of interest as well, because when we dug those pits and buried those horns, we had our whole team there. So our vineyard team, our seller team, our sales team, everyone was yeah. there. And um, I don't. I think that a bit of that experience is lost in sort of industrial farming today, where it is just X's and O's, and you spray this and you kill that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I think bringing everyone together, there's, it's, it's work, no doubt, but I think there's more to it and it creates a connectedness that is lost in a lot of, well, in a lot of there's production. There's also no story behind saying, yeah, we sprayed some. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I, and I, I 100% agree with what you said earlier that there, there are so many options with every type of alcohol that, and, and not just options, but really high quality, good options so the story is extremely important because that adds to the experience of, and I think that's what so many consumers want now. It's not just, I, I want to drink to get drunk. It's building an experience around a product that has a story that you 
that is interesting to listen to. Yeah, uh, so much of what we do uh, is sort of driven by what interests and stimulates us, right? So yeah. like, I mean, we're trying to make products that we want to drink and hopefully other people want to drink them as well. And you're right. Um, in the average store, I don't know, there's 10,000 options in terms of what you can buy within the broader category of alcohol to enjoy on a Friday night. And for us, it's just about making products that sort of interest and stimulate and uh, energize us and then also, um, you know, provide uh, a story that, um, you know, that offers a consumer an experience that has layers beyond uh, drinking. So where did Burnt Hill get its name from? So Burnt Hill is a name that was given to the farm by traders um, some 200 years ago uh, because it's, I mentioned, it's a big hillside, really rocky soils, uh, I think great for grapes, but really tough for growing uh, traditional crops um, for sustenance. So at that time, what the farmers would do was slash and burn agriculture. So they would literally just cut down trees, they would burn them, uh, and they would use the ash for charcoal, um, for potash for lye, for soap making. Um, so the traders uh, would come from surrounding territories and go to this area to get all of their, uh, to get the products that I had just mentioned. Okay. And so when they would go down this old Burnt Hill Trail, uh, which is now Burnt Hill Road, it's still there today, um, everything was smoldering and they literally just <laughs> called it Burnt Hill because that was its physical it was appearance at fire. that time. Yeah, so <laughs> that is, it's no longer on fire. That's um, good. It'll but, be much safer for people to <laughs> to go there. Absolutely. Um, but we think that um, sort of like that name and that story is both interesting and also sort of indicative of why we think it's a great place to grow grapes. Yeah. So will Burnt Hill be just a place for growing grapes to use for production at Old Westminster or is Burnt Hill its own like its own brand where you'll have a separate tasting room and it'll operate somewhat separate autonomously from So Burnt Hill is its own story it's its own brand okay. Um, so there's no secret uh, that we're behind it. Yeah. Um, but it's gonna. It, it, we think that this site really has its own story to tell, and how that will play out over the coming decade as it relates to um, specific products and tasting room, etc. Um, still a lot to figure out there. I think there's a lot of really great options to explore, um, but we intend to do something very special. Well, yeah, because you. St I mean, how many years do you have before you would have a product that you could sell? And it's. Uh four years because we're going to be planting our vineyard this spring. So I would say 21, 2022 uh, range is when we'll have product. Um, actually, just uh, to, uh, just on Monday, the other day, uh, we um, went out in the woods and cut down a handful of uh, ancient white oak trees that we hand selected. Um, and we're going to take these trees and mill the logs to staves to make our own large format fooders. Oh, uh, cool. Yeah. And these fooders will be ready in 2021, just in time to, uh, to be home for our first crop. So we're really continually trying to look at what, uh, you know, new and creative ways to create this self-contained organism um, that sort of captures the magic uh, of that of that place in a bottle of wine. So by build your yourself, like are you physically building it, or are you 
supplying the wood to a cooper so it'll be a commendation uh we went out so we are going to be working with a cooper no doubt um but we went out and uh harvested the trees ourselves we're dragging these things out of the woods (laughs) and uh we'll cut them to uh we'll cut them to staves um which will uh age on our farm um you know that uh barrel staves are best uh aged over time outdoors um and uh what this does is it seasons the wood and it also um you know that seasoning is really driven by the environment and sort of that microflora that exists in a particular place. So we'll age those staves on our farm, um, which is which is quite unique. Uh, and then we will take those staves and we will have a professional cooper uh, okay. put them uh, put them together into uh, a giant fooder for us. Because yeah, from what I understand, fooders are very difficult to uh, it's assemble. A, it's a skill set that yeah. we don't have. Yeah. It, when we went to Trogues up in Hurst, they have I can't remember how many barrel their fooders are they well they have three just humongous ones and they were telling the story about those being assembled and how it was not the easiest thing in the world I'm sure I'm sure so how large were will those ones be or Um, we're looking at 2,000 gallons which is that's a large they're uh, large yeah (laughs) yeah and we'll do a few of them so we cut down enough trees starting to do three okay so the you said you were planting 30,000 vines. Are those from seeds or are they started or like started growing somewhere else and you're transplanting? Sure. So what are we planting? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> um, Actually, wait, let's, um, that, this is a great segue to let's stop take a quick break, thank mm-hmm. our sponsors, and then we'll go right into what is being planted exactly. Sounds good. A huge thank you to our presenting sponsor, Roast House Pub, which is located at 5700 Urbana Pike in Frederick, Maryland. If you have listened to this podcast before, you have definitely heard me go on and on about the beer dinners that Chef Nico creates. Simply put, they are amazing. But Roast House Pub has much more to offer. Their friendly staff is knowledgeable about beer and will help you choose from among the 20 beers they have on tap. In addition to the awesome beer selection, the food is always amazing. Make sure to follow them on Facebook and check their website at www.roasthousepub.com to keep up to date on their constant stream of events. The Frederick Spirits Festival is coming back to the Frederick Fairgrounds on April 20th for a day of food, music, and local spirits. Find your inner mixologist with a cocktail mixing seminar with sampling included with a crafting pass, or join us for the spirits sampling by picking up a tasting pass. Liven up your liquor cabinet with local Maryland spirits. For more information and tickets, go to frederickspiritsfestival.com. Yeah, so what um, what form of the plants are you going to be sticking into the ground? Sure, yeah, so we're going to be planting uh, uh, cuttings. Um, okay. So these are cuttings uh, that have uh, scion wood, which is wood with buds on it, uh, and a set of roots. Um, so these cuttings are about uh, a foot uh, to foot and a half long, and they're planted roots in the ground, bud wood up. Uh, and uh, in the spring, as the weather warms, uh, those buds push uh, and the roots take, uh, and this becomes the plant. Um, so we're planting uh, a ridiculous variety of, of, of uh, grapes on the site, uh, over a hundred varieties. Oh, wow. um, yeah, so, so I don't. You'll be able to make the gamut of. Uh, so it's products. a bit of experimentation. So we're planting some of our uh, favorites from the old world. Uh, Cabernet Franc, really excited to plant uh, Gamay. Um, 
some varieties that we love, uh, Petit Verdot, no doubt. Um, but we're also planting um, a really uh, wide assortment of uh, Native American and mixed heritage varieties because we wanted to sort of like re-examine what American wine should be. Uh, and it sort of this biodynamic uh, thinking has been, you know, the idea of having a self-contained, a native farm that doesn't require inputs. It was bothering me uh, that so much of the wine that is produced in America and around the world is um, European in descent. So really, you know, the Napa Cabs, the Sonoma Coast Pinot, et cetera, et cetera, the Cabernet Franc from Maryland, um, you know, these are grapevines that are native to France. And what we wanted to do was create wines that were really delicious, but also truly American. Um, so we're sort of re-exploring these Native American uh, grape varieties. And um, some of them have never been grown commercially before. Um, oh, wow. So we're going to have a really wide variety of... So does that mean they're just like... Actually, we should open something because we've been talking we're for getting quite, parched. Yeah, yeah. quite some time. You've said a lot of words. You probably <laughs> have a dry mouth. Uh, we have several things sitting in front of us waiting to be opened. Graham bought a, brought us one of the cheapest bottle openers in existence. So I'm glad. <laughs> it's a company one. Yeah, it's, yeah it, it's not uncapped, so that's why it's not working right. That smells really good. So we, we were talking... Uh, well, actually, let's... um. Let's finish talking about the varieties, then you can tell us about this wine, because I, just as everything else you've told us about so far is ridiculously interesting to me. Yeah, so um, we're planting a wide variety of grapes. Uh, we're going to see what's work, what works uh, and what doesn't. Um, some old world grapes that we know will work well, some new world grapes that we think um, we're going to be able to farm uh, certified organically biodynamically, which is very important to us and are native and unique and will tell a story unlike anywhere else. Um, one of the great varieties we're planting is actually native to Clarksburg, Maryland, which is the town where that farm is. And there's papers going back to the early 1800s of an old doctor in that town who raised this particular grape variety. And folks from around the country would come and take cuttings because he said the wine was so good. Oh, wow. And it blows my mind that, you know, to me, it, it would be irresponsible not to, yeah, not to plant this great variety and try to revive that story. It would be a just shy of criminal. It, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So with that n knowledge and knowing that that is like a thing, um, true to that place, it's, it's, yeah, it's obligatory. So are a lot of, um, these styles that you'll be trying, are, do you even know if they they will be able to grow here? Because or I'm will confident. all grapes um, vines grow everywhere? So these Native American grape varieties are going to grow much better here okay. uh, than those of European descent. Um, so part of part of um, uh, the issue, the challenge with growing these European grape varieties in uh, on the east coast of North America is that we have a lot of rain, uh, and these varieties require tons of input inputs from a pesticide standpoint. Um, they're really not well equipped to survive on their own okay. and it's our job to come alongside nature and to sort of um, uh, nurture them to create great wine which we can do these native american grape varieties many of them have been living in the woods uh without the help of people yeah. for so for they're just gonna millennia. flourish they're going to flourish uh and it's our job to come alongside nature and see if we can't create some really delicious and unique wines from these varieties 
I think we can, and that's why we're setting out on this exploration. Um, but it's going to be, uh, you know, a wild ride and, and very different from, um, from that, uh, you know, cab that you're used to. Well, I'm not really used to anything, but there you go. So, <laughs> so you as the listener, <laughs> um, are any of the clippings from Old Westminster, or have they been sourced from all over the pl- just all over the place? Some from Old Westminster and all over the place. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's 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 uh, a very wide diversity, and um, it's that diversity that we're really leaning into, and I think will become a staple of this place. How did you pick the combination of what you chose, or did you just like? click select all and nope. add to cart. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, not at all. So um, much of the um, really experimental Native American stuff we're working with, I've, I've got a good buddy down in Virginia. His name is Cliff Ambers. And uh, Cliff is just one of the most interesting guys in the world. And um, uh, he, for decades now, has been taking the pollen of cultivated grape varieties, say that Cabernet Sauvignon in your vineyard, and he has been crossing that pollen with wild native female vines that live in the woods and in different places that he's identified. Um, And then taking that fruit from seed, growing those vines from seed, and then from clippings, creating new graft wood to transplant into vineyards for commercial application. It's crazy. So he's created literally hundreds of grape varieties via these, uh, you know, native crossings. And um, the uh, much of the plant material uh, we sourced from him and we're I I think in a way continuing his work, which is really exciting. So they are just, they're literally experimental. They're They're literally experimental. Most of these varieties are named by numbers. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's into the, the same world that, uh, hop experimentation is now where there's hops even coming to markets that just have a, uh, HB and then a number. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's uh, very similar to that. So you take you take varieties that you know and you love, and then uh, but are but require much input, and then you find sort of a wild female vine growing in the woods that uh, has been there for a hundred years, and you cross the two, uh, and then you take those plants from seed and see what you get. Science is amazing. It really is incredible. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let's talk about this wine a little bit because mm-hmm. this is. It's every pretty crushable, time, isn't it? Every time I try a wine that I enjoy, I'm just completely surprised because mm-hmm. my experience has so much been trying something and not liking it at all. But this is, I could actually drink this and enjoy it. Cool. Yeah. So this is a uh, Petnat Piquette. Petnat, Petillon Natural, naturally sparkling. Uh, Piquette uh, is a French term for a second wine. Uh, and this is a wine that's made by rehydrating uh, pressed grapes uh, with water off of, out of a deep well on our farm, spontaneously fermenting using the yeast that are, all, uh, that are on the skins. And then all of the flavor, character, texture, etc., are coming from uh, the good stuff that still resides in those skins through maceration. Um, this is essentially a second wine, 7% alcohol. It's a combination of fermented grapes and water. And, um, and then we bottle before the fermentation is finished under a crown cap. And it's essentially bottle conditioned, which is what makes it sparkle, uh, via the sugars that are in those grapes naturally fermenting. So no additions, no sulfites added, um, just pure juice. Yeah. So it's nature going to work. That, that, that's it. This would have been the, the type of beverage that we would have all drank for most of human history. Um, 
so uh, for much of human history, uh, wine would have been expensive. Um, only the elite would have had access to very good wine. And um, we would probably go help that uh, uh, estate owner pick their grapes during harvest. And part of our payment would be the freshly pressed grape skins that we would take back to our house. We would add some water, re-spontaneously ferment, and create a product pretty similar to this. And it would achieve a couple things. It would make our water clean, which likely would have been our biggest problem for a long yeah, time. It was actually safe to drink this. It was safe to drink. And it would be a low alcohol product that we could drink all day while we worked. And that's what this is. It's gone out of fashion for the past 150 years or so. And uh, we think it's high time to bring it back because it has a time and a place. This isn't your sort of Christmas dinner wine. Um but it's certainly, you know, your late spring, summer, summer, sunny day when you're out with friends picnicking. Like this is just really crushable. And at 7% alcohol, you can drink the whole bottle. For breakfast. Yeah, there you, you go. Can, you can have it brunch. early in the morning and not feel bad. It's the idea. <laughs> yep. So what was... Um... I did drink a whole bottle by myself on Thanksgiving. I started at 10 a.m. <laughs> it was great. What is the... What was the first uh, wine made from this? The, uh, so we call run. this a field blend because this has grapes um, from uh, Cabernet Franc, Chambersin, and Syrah. Okay. So these are all grape varieties that were picked. They were whole cluster pressed for rosé. Uh, we don't press them too terribly hard. We leave the press fraction or some of that juice still in the skins. Uh, and then we immediately transport all of this uh, must um, that is sort of pressed grapes with juice and all the good stuff into a tank and then we cover the skins with water uh and we allow it to spontaneously ferment okay so i think um i finally remembered the other thing that i wanted to talk to you about okay it's not on my list the big jug the oh the amphora yes that thing what you you can use the proper yeah word. so it's call big i'll call it big jug the big jug <laughs> yeah so it's a it's a giant clay pot yeah uh and pre sort of um uh, oak revolution uh pre-roman times uh the romans were really good at making ships and vessels out of wood that made it really convenient to transport everything before that um people were most accustomed to making clay pots and um clay pots are what they would have fermented grape wine in stored it in drank it from etc um so this is just sort of an ode to the past and sort of us continually trying to tell stories make delicious products that are interesting and unique um so we actually acquired um a giant clay jug <laughs> and uh we fermented um some whole cluster pinot gris in it um so we basically picked the fruit put the fruit in tread it in by foot and closed it. No additions, no sulfites, no nothing. Um, and this is the way wine would have been made for a long, long time. Uh, and the results are very interesting. Um, so I think it'll be a really fun wine. It's super rustic and earthy, uh, funky, but delicious. And um, we'll be releasing that this fall. Oh, cool. Um, so th I guess the, it's just using the naturally occurring yeast 100 percent. yep that's that's most that... we're not dogmatic but we tend to like to ferment that way okay and that's mostly how we do it um so there's yeast in the environment um and um you know we farm in a way that cares for it so if you're out there spraying too much pesticides you can really um you know you can sort of damage uh your uh, native flora um so we're really careful not only in sort of our pest management strategy to do it with a light hand not only uh, 
uh, being mindful of all of the bugs and insects that are good, but also the, the, the flora that we need to create these fermentations that are true to our place. So at tasting it through the process, it, is it, um, are you getting results you would have expected or has it been a complete surprise of what what you've re- you've gotten out of that? Yeah, sure. Um, it works pretty well. Um, and what we have really learned is the value of this technique, which is called a pied de cuve, which basically means that, um, you know, if you have this block of Chardonnay grapes and you're getting ready to pick it, everything looks good. And you say to yourself, we're going to pick this in the next couple of days. Um, you first go out and pick um, uh, two five gallon buckets of the best looking fruit, bring it in, crush it and put that fruit in a carboy, a glass jug and allow it to create its own natural fermentation. Um, so, you know, three, four or five days later, that fermentation is real, really roaring and you're able to taste it and sort of get a feel for those native yeast. And then when you actually harvest the entire block and bring it in and press, you can use uh, that carboy to pitch on top of the rest of the uh, the juice and inoculate oh, so like with it its kickstart and you're kickstarting it with its own native flora. Oh. So um, you can go out and um, and sort of pick the best looking fruit um, and and sort of create your own uh, starter. So the how fun is it to stamp down grapes with your feet, or does it just feel really gross? It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You feel like you're connecting with like thousands of years of, of, of human history when you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. It's completely unnecessary with modern technology, but I think situationally there's just something to it. Well, going back to the other things you said, it it adds to the story and it's fun. It's fun. Why why do something if it's not going to be fun? Exactly. If you can have the fun option. Right. If you can make a great product and have fun, why would you choose to make a great product and not have any fun? always choose fun. Right. Right. (laughs) Especially when you're making a product that is 100% meant for fun. Yep, exactly. I mean, if if wine doesn't offer you pleasure, then what's the point? So we got we covered the yeah. big clay jug. Yeah. Uh, you taught me w- about wine that's been around for absolutely forever that I knew nothing about. Yeah. <laughs> you want to try a different variation of that? I think we should. Yeah. So um, we're calling this... Especially uh, now that I know I like it. Yeah, so this... Similarly, is also a piquette. Uh, we call this a skin contact piquette. Kind of bit of bit of an oxymoron because all piquette is skin contact. Um, but we think it's important to sort of set consumers' expectations. It's like calling a pet nat unfiltered. It is um, by definition unfiltered, but sometimes it's nice to iterate that to sort of set the customer's expectations. Um, this is made from a handful of different grape varieties, Pinot Gris, Viognier, et cetera, um, white grapes, but they have some color in the skins. Hence this really pretty sort of like salmon peach color. I really, really mm-hmm. like this one. Similarly to the last, this is only 6% alcohol. Um, it's like a summertime. This is an all-natural wine spritzer. Yeah, it's like drinking beer. Mm-hmm. Or even, by today's standards, a light beer. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it also happens to check a lot of boxes in that, um, you know, it's 100 calories a can. There's no gluten. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's, there's no sugar. Um, it's, it, it really is an all natural, delicious product that happens to be, you know, obviously the healthiest thing to drink is water, but yeah. assuming it's Friday night and you're hanging out with your yeah. friends, like this is, um, this is really a good for you option. Yeah. It's, and it's, um, it tastes really good. 
which is also very important. But <laughs> I, I agree with you. This is a, would be very refreshing. It's mm-hmm. a it's a lawn it's a um a lawnmower wine. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put that in our marketing. Thanks, Chris. No problem. Feel free to use that. Yeah. Um, so I think the last thing that we wanted to talk about was the summer solstice. Absolutely. So, and what is that? Yeah. So summer solstice is um, the longest day of the year. Uh, it's also an important day uh, in biodynamics for a whole litany of reasons that we won't go into. Um, but it's important to how we're farming, and also to those who are farming and creating wines that really inspire us. We're not inventing any of this. We're really looking to others that are doing things well and emulating. And uh, so we thought, um, you know, it's going to be years before we have our own wine. And in the interim, what we should do is sort of put on, elevate, celebrate people who have inspired what we're doing and why we're doing it. So we're going to have a summer solstice festival at our Burnt Hill Farm in Clarksburg, Maryland on June 22nd, Saturday. It's the solstice. Uh, It's the, the midsummer weekend. And um, we have 30 winemakers from around the world um, who are farming biodynamically, uh, sustainably, and creating really amazing wines. Um, The winemakers are coming, and we're going to have sort of a big, um, you know, a festive environment where we introduce um, the sort of DMV area to, um, you know, the beauty of of natural wine and what's going on out there and uh, who's behind it uh, and who's inspiring us and sort of creating this like really fun, festive center of energy. Uh, And that's what we're really looking to create um, on our farm. That's what we want it to be. So years in advance of having our own product and saying, hey, come give us money and buy this thing that we've made. We thought that it would be really special to sort of put on those who have inspired us and are sort of guiding our philosophy and our direction. So that's the idea. So are there any other local wineries that will be there? Or is it mainly, did you go just throughout the whole world to bring people in? Throughout the world. Yeah. Will, will so Hen- Will Henry Rollins be there? Uh, Doesn't he have a winery? H- Henry will, Rollins will not be there. <laughs> um, but uh, we're um, on our website, um, burnthill.farm slash solstice. You can find a full lineup of all the winemakers and merchants that will be there. Uh, we're working up a detailed list of the 100 plus wines that will be poured there. And, um, you know, we're not revolutionary uh, in anything that we're doing. Um, we're really just emulating other people that are doing it right. And these are producers um, from, from near and far that are farming biodynamically and sort of to an ethos that that we really take interest in so it's a almost like a community of like-minded wine producers that's the idea so are are these other people that are kind of breaking the mold of what the uh, stereotypical winery is supposed to be like much like your family is or is it just across the board different styles and i think uh, it's different styles and um different degrees and different ethos um etc but there's sort of some common threads in it as it relates to sort of like what's important and why we're why we're farming this way um that that i think uh we hope is is the commonality that we're really hoping uh to 
to to highlight. Um, I think that you know in the um, Baltimore, Frederick, D.C., Northern Virginia area, there's a lot of interest in. You mentioned at the beginning of the show, you know, I've I've heard of biodynamics. What is this thing? Yeah. You know, and um, I think that it's you know high time that we that we really um, you know not only connect sort of what is it, but but offer the opportunity to meet the farmers, meet the makers, and taste the products. Um, and uh, you know, it's our hope that you discover that the wines are alive and they have an energy and a personality that you're not used to. So will the, the actual owners and winemakers of those wineries be uh, present? At Absolutely. The... It's the whole, it's the awesome. whole idea of the festival. So it, I, I've never been to a wine festival. Is that normal for a wine festival? It's or not. Is it... This is okay, going to be really, um, uh, I think groundbreaking. I, I hope uh, that this event becomes a landmark gathering of the natural wine community sort of in this region. So um, there's, uh, you know, a festival called Rawl in New York City that happens once a year that I've attended a couple of times in the past. And similarly, this is a gathering of these winemakers, um, but it's never come closer to us than New York City. So um, we think there's a lot of people in this region that are that that are sort of interested in, in understanding this thing, having some fun. Um, we're going to have... Uh, uh, Clavel and Ekiben and Black Sauce and Primrose, some just really amazing um, food um, and music. Um, so we're going to bring it all together, have some good quality fun uh, atop a beautiful hillside. But um, the winemakers and the products are going to be delicious and serious and, and sort of uh, groundbreaking. I, I love that style of festival much more than if it's just like in the beer world, if it's a distributor driven festival where it's either just a volunteer that's manning the, the, the booth. And if you have questions that they really don't have answers to. So it's, it's from how I look at um, going to a festival, usually wanting to learn about the individual places. I think it's very important and advantageous for the, the people who are in there in the weeds actually making the product or owning it that uh, are there to answer the questions and absolutely tell the story. And I think we're like-minded in that way. And that's why we're putting this festival together. Um, you know, we're really trying to create an environment where you can meet the maker. Um, it will sell out. We do have a limited capacity and we're really looking to, um, you know, create an environment where you can taste a lot of amazing wines that you've never been able to get your hands on before and meet the cool people that are behind them and that they can really explain, um, you know, the what and the why is this so good and so unique and unlike anything I've ever had before so that's june 22nd uh what's the times that'll take place um so we'll do vip from 12 to 6 and then general admission from 2 to 6 okay that's a n nice long vip mm -hmm. time yep um tickets are currently on sale they're uh, on sale you can hop on our website burnthill.farm slash solstice um, and, um, we're doing it through mission tickets and, uh, there's a couple of different ticketing options, um, as would be expected. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's on the farm. Um, we'll have parking on the farm. We'll also have some carpooling options and some sort of meat and bus in kind of options as well. Um, so a diversity of ways to get there. Um, but definitely make sure you get some tickets. It's going to be one you don't want to miss. Awesome. It sounds awesome. That, that sounds like the first, um, as I've said, you were the first wine that I ever purchased for my own consumption and not for my wife. It sounds like one of the first wine festivals that it would, I would ever find enjoyable. Awesome. 
Um, actually, there was one other thing that. So if there, if there's any, is there anything else about the solstice you want to go over? I think we covered it. Um, the the cider collaboration you did. I find that I, that sounds pretty interesting also. Yeah. So we're um, going to be launching our piece of that uh, collaboration. So good friends with the folks at Graph Cider up in Hudson Valley, New York, formerly uh, the founders of Millstone Cidery here in Baltimore. Uh, now they've founded Graft Cidery. Oh, I didn't know they had a connection to the area. Yep. So there is that connection. That's how, actually how um, uh, I initially became pals with Kyle, uh, who is one of the founders along with uh, his sister. And, um, they are, uh, just sort of a young dynamic team making some pretty cool products as well. And felt like it was, uh, the right thing to do to, uh, to collaborate and create sort of like a delicious mashup between the two worlds. Um, so they created, uh, a cider that was, um, steeped with our grapes and aged in our barrels. And we took some Hudson Valley grapes back from their cidery to our farm and fermented them in our barrels, um, uh, with, with our native yeast. And, uh, so they created a canned rosé product and we're creating sort of this barrel fermented barrel aged um uh, and then bottle conditioned delicious oh, cool. um uh delicious goodness um that we're calling how about them apples <laughs> yeah. nice when and when will that come out or late it... late april okay so we're gonna do uh, a collection we're gonna do a release party one in baltimore and one in dc Wait, has their version come out already or is that so they that just they just released? put it it's instagram official but they're going to okay. be released <laughs> together in late april so you, oh, can't, awesome. you can't get so your hands on it yet time? exactly that's cool yeah they beat us to the instagram punch but oh, uh but man but we're coming one <laughs> month one month actually i think if if i remember correctly they have much like um you guys have a very good uh, social media presence yeah like for sure they 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 have a very interesting Instagram account that's worth following, which sure. is a leeway that I think everyone should follow old Westminster and, uh, burnt Hill separately. Uh, because if there's beyond making a great product, you guys also have the social media game down pat. Thanks man. Yeah. It's about storytelling for sure. Yeah. And you, it, cause you guys do it all yourself too. You we know? do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my sisters and I, um, we have uh, a, a really talented uh, team, um, Carly Pickett, who uh, works with us and um, manages um, sort of like the, uh, the 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 bigger picture on on the stories that we're trying mm -hmm. to tell on social media. So yeah, we do it all in house. Yeah, I mean, like it's some like, high dollar New York advertising agency quality. We're, we <laughs> are we are not high dollar. <laughs> we do everything ourselves. So, I mean, we pride ourselves in, in um, you know, in, in not only creating great products, but telling the story well. Um, but yeah, we, we don't have any agencies involved. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I think it should take some time to brag about all the things you have going on with Westminster too, that you've, uh, expanded into a lot of markets recently, haven't? If I've yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to be in Austin, Texas, in a couple of weeks for the Wild World uh, uh, Festival at Jester King Brewery. Um, it's an all things native yeast fermentation festival at oh. Jester King, which pretty excited about that. Can you sneak me down with you? I mean, we 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 <laughs> were love... invited. I mean, how crazy is that? I got an email um, from one of the co curators of the Raw Wine Festival from New York City that said, "Hey, we're doing this thing at Jester King." They they reached out to us and we want to find some some sort of like 
odd off the beaten path wineries from around the country that are doing cool shit. And they were like, we've been following old Westminster on Instagram and we think that they'd be a really cool fit. So it was just like, yeah, we'll do that. Are you kidding me? That's amazing. So <laughs> do you need a volunteer to help pour? <laughs> we, we, we can talk offline Jester, about that. Jester King's at the top of my list of, uh, breweries that i need to go to at some point i have enjoyed some beers but not been there before so i'm gonna be there in a couple of weeks for a for a festival so yeah um, my sister just got back from california last week she was out there for a uh, for a series of festivals so yeah we are we're sort of dividing and conquering um and um you know just trying to get out and tell the story of the cool things that are happening on the east coast of the u.s with the rest of the country and the world so has uh has canning picked uh, Oh yeah, Steam it's a thing. It's it's a thing. So a lot more. Two years ago, now. two years ago, we were the first farm winery on the East Coast to can, and it was just like, what? That's so strange. It's <laughs> a, um, but in that time. Um, dozens and dozens and dozens of other wineries have followed suit and you're seeing it all over the place. And, um, I think that, uh, not unlike the craft beer movement, which it was once believed that the order of hierarchy was draft bottle can, uh, and boy, hasn't that flipped on its head just a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, so I think we're seeing that in wine as well. Um, you know, sort of a breaking down of the pretense and this understanding that really amazing products can actually come in, in packaging that I can take anywhere with me. So the, I've said it to you multiple times. You you seem to take the same approach to making wine as craft brewers have done to uh, the the stodgy old fizzy yellow beer. Um, do you do you in the wine community purists? Do you get pushback or all the time? It's, all so, the time, but um, have learned really well just to tune it out and not work, not so worried about it. I mean, haters gonna hate. There's yeah. no question about it. Uh, doesn't matter what you're doing. Um, and I think well, there's um, that cliche with if you're, if you're not pissing anyone off, uh, you are, you aren't doing it right or yep. something along those and, lines. And I believe that. Yeah, you're not doing anything worth writing about. That's for sure. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think for us, like, this is a really fun adventure and we're just sort of enjoying every minute of it and trying to continually like stimulate ourselves and continue to push boundaries. I think it's just sort of like part of who we are. I think that comes through in our wines. Um, you know, obviously fundamental to everything is like, is it delicious and does you bring you pleasure? Is there a story there? And if the answer to those things is yes, then I don't see the need for all of the pretense and additional rules on who and where and why things have to be done this way. And if they're not, they're inferior. It's just, you know, not the way it should be. I couldn't agree more. I, I, um, there's a lot of things being done in craft beer that people will mock now or like that it's trendy or it's all about hype. But in the end, I still, in, I, I also mock, but it's typically just cause saying I want to make people laugh, but I'll still be one of those people that seek after those things or cause if, I mean, if it tastes good and it has a uniqueness or a story behind it, I I'm going to go after it also. Absolutely. So will you be putting glitter in wine? No, <laughs> no. So I mean, for us, go? no, I think to us, like what we're really trying to do is like lean into, um, 
you know, a particular winemaking ethos that's important to us, which is native yeast fermentations. It's sustainable, organic, biodynamic farming. It's no fining filtration, like no makeup, right? Like there's, there's 200 and some approved additives that can go legally go into a bottle of wine, which is just crazy to us. I think if you're trying to create a wine that's true to a sense of place, it should include, uh, as near zero of those ingredients, except for the grapes and where they came from. Um, so that is sort of fundamentally to what we believe. Um, after that, I think there's tons of room for creativity. Um, so we're really not like adjunct heavy type, uh, winemakers. Uh, in fact, I would say that we're very minimalist, but in terms of, in terms of style, packaging, approachability, lack of pretense, that's where we're really doing our work. I need to figure out what it is, the, the difference between your wines and the problem is I don't have the, I don't have the vocabulary around tasting wine or wines to even be able to describe what it is about wines I've tried that I find disgusting as opposed to the ones I've had of yours that I enjoy. Cause we should, it just, would be, I think we just need to sit down and drink some wine someday. It pro- that's probably what it is. I need to sit with someone who knows what they're talking about and be like, I hate this. You could, Give me an idea of like what I'm tasting in that and what it's, the difference. It's, I are. think it's, it's. I mean, my my hunch would be that it's mostly driven by additives, whether that's sugar or tannins or extracts or you know just sort of all of the bizarro things that are added to industrial wine these days. I think it, and I think it may be the sugars because this is a really dry. Everything that it, we do, with almost no exception, is dry um, and naturally dry. We don't add sugar back, and um, you know that's again. I think that it's better for you and it creates um, you know a product that gives us more pleasure um, no doubt there's a huge market out there for sweet wines plenty of people make it that's just not our thing yeah. and um, yeah I think for those who aren't into it it's definitely you know uh, something it's something that doesn't bring me any pleasure so that's why we don't make it because yeah, like recently I I went on a tour of a few wineries with a group of friends for one of our friends 40th birthdays and I thought like, oh, this would be great. If there's more in there, I'll yeah. take some too. This will. This is a great opportunity for me to. I'll write an article for the next magazine. The beer guy tours wineries, and it was like two wineries in. I was like, yeah, scratch this. It's gonna be way too negative for for me to take because I didn't enjoy anything. And then thankfully, we went someplace that had beer, and so I just ordered a beer. <laughs> you know, I appreciate your discretion in that. There's a lot of negativity in the world, and it's best, you know, if you've got something nice to say, say it. If you don't, just keep it. Well, I try, and I, I agree with that, too, and I am often negative, so I try to keep uncapped more positive. If I'm going to say anything negative, it's usually only directed towards Graham or something he's <laughs> done or the face he's made or... Yeah. So my negativity is usually laser focused during uncapped just to Graham and not towards anyone else, much to his delight. (laughs) So do we have anything else that you have coming up that I don't know about? I think we pretty much covered the gamut. Um, pretty excited about the summer solstice festival and everything we're doing at Burnt yeah, Hill. That sounds awesome. And, uh, yeah, it's going to be and a I, great new project. I love the story of Burnt Hill. That is, uh, was super interesting. I'm glad I at least have an idea of what biodynamic farming is. It does not sound like something I'd be capable of, but it sounds awesome. Yeah. So I wish you all of the, actually, wait, did you get to try the whiskey? No. 
No, you need to. All right. Because well, I don't think I had it the last time you were on. What an appropriate way to end this show. This is, it's become our tradition. Uh, this is a whiskey that I made with McClintock distilling. Which is there's a lot of I think a lot of similarities between I, I know all about the those two guys. Got, yeah, uh, you, the two companies. Um, I made this with them. I'll use made with them in loosely. Uh, I was there and semi involved. But we, this is a single malt whiskey uh, with chocolate, a bunch of chocolate malts and infused with hops. That'll be out sometime late this year, next year. Uh, so cool. thank you for coming on. Thank you for bringing delicious wine with you. Um, cheers. And thank you, everyone, for watching and listening. Good to be here. Thanks, Chris. The Uncapped Podcast is produced by Graham Cullen and me, Chris Sands. Be sure to like us on Facebook. And if you've enjoyed these podcasts, please leave us a review on Google Play or the iTunes Store. A special thanks to Double Motorcycle for providing our theme music. Thanks for listening. Oh, my God. That's good.